Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Joshua Smith with REMAX Professionals in Surprise, Arizona. He works the Northwest Valley of Metro Phoenix. Last year, he closed 463 transactions with a total sales volume of $49 million. His average sales price was $106,000, of which 13% were buyers and 87% were sellers. He operates a team with 14 members, three listing specialists, three buyer specialists, five administrative staff, and two field techs. Joshua Smith leads the Smith & Associates Real Estate Group with his father, Randy. Joshua has been licensed for six years. This father and son team formed different than most. Joshua and Randy entered the business at the same time as competitors. Each ran their own business for the first two years. When it was time to take on staff, they decided to combine forces and made a formal business arrangement. Joshua started out as a traditional agent. He and Randy moved to Arizona six years ago and started from scratch. They each built successful businesses through open houses, expired listings, and other traditional methods. Then the market turned. Luckily, Joshua had already set the foundation for an REO and short sale business. As the market declined, foreclosures, REOs, and short sales increased. The Smith Group's business went up while most others went down. Joshua will discuss how he broke into the REO business how he's developing short sale business by delivering 10,000 door hangers per month, how he converts expired listings, and how he's adjusting to the new changes in the market. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Joshua. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you were doing before you got into real estate. Before I got into real estate, I grew up in the, the gym business, the health club business. My father owned and operated health clubs uh, while I was growing up. So I did that working for my father while I was in high school and, and uh, worked in the gym through college. And then uh, for several years after that, so I was in the gym business doing that, uh, just managing gym. Started off as a personal trainer, and then I got into more of a, a management and sales role in, in the health club industry. What made you decide to go into real estate? Well, you know, I, I just got to a point where, you know, that, that was all I knew. That was all I ever did. I, I grew up with it. You know, I started cleaning equipment for my dad when I was 11. And 
you know, then it kind of evolved from there. But, um, you know, I was, I was 23 years old, and, you know, I love the gyms. I still love the gym business. But, you know, I just, just wanted to try something new, something different, just to see what else is out there. And uh, at the time, uh, you know, 23 years old, I didn't really have a, a lot of reserves to go out and start a business. I, I knew I wanted to go into business for myself. I mean, I had several friends, and, and actually my father, who had retired from the gym business and, and got into real estate kind of a part time just to just to supplement some income there. It looked pretty intriguing and it was uh, relatively cheap to to get licensed and get started and uh, figured I'd give it a shot. So I went and got my license at 23 and really haven't looked back since. Do you think that you had a fast start or a slow start? Gosh, it was pretty fast, I would say. You know, I, I got in the business and I was kind of in a position. You know, again at 23. Didn't have a lot of reserves, you know, so it's kind of kind of in a in a position where I had to sell immediately, or else I wasn't going to make my house payment and, and and pay my bills. So, definitely hungry, definitely focused. My my fourth day in the business, I was at an open house, sold a three hundred thousand dollar home to a cash buyer. Kind of a mix of of right place, right time, a little luck, but just started running with it from there. You know, I was very very aggressive in, in my prospecting. The one nice thing about the the health club business. And a lot of people think, you know, when you're in the health club business, you're just talking to members and, you know, you're, you're not really prospecting, which is completely the opposite. You know, we, we prospected very heavily. I was mandated to make a, a hundred cold calls a day. So, you know, the prospecting was already behind my belt. I'd been trained for it. I was used to it. I wasn't afraid of it. So, you know, I, I just kind of applied those principles in real estate and, and just got to work. You know, I'd go to Home Depot, which is right across the street from my office at the time, and you know, every day for three hours, just handing out cards, trying to talk to people, um, you know, working open houses, you know, every single day I wasn't with a client. Business grew very, very quickly. How many years have you been practicing real estate? Just past my sixth year. I got licensed in uh, April of 2005. Do I understand correctly that you and your father worked together? That's correct. You know, we started off as individual agents. And actually, we, we had Got, got my license. We started the same firm together, but it, but again, total separate, total individual agents. And then I had made a, a switch to to Remax, where I'm with currently, and he followed about a year later. But uh, we you know we both got to the point where we were having a lot of success as individual agents, but we were also getting to the point where we needed to start hiring our own personal assistants to to take our our business to the next level. And, and it just kind of made sense to to team up and split some of those costs in the beginning, split some marketing costs, split some assistant costs. So we actually teamed up, I, gosh, I can't remember the exact year, um, but it's, it's going on about, uh, this will actually be 2012 will be our fourth year is a, is a father-son team. Okay, so you ran about two years by yourself, independently of each other, and then you got together and created a partnership about four years ago. Right, correct. We're going to talk a lot about your team later, but let's just focus on your partnership for a minute. How did you bring that together? What kind of arrangement do you have with you and your father? What do you do? What does he do? What are your tasks, titles, et cetera? Well, when we started this, um, you know, the market was a lot different, obviously, than, than, than it is today. You know, when we started this, we, we just brought on one assistant, basically a TC, um, and, and he and I still were in charge of, of going out, prospecting ourselves, working both of our own personal listings, own personal sellers, and uh, just splitting the marketing and the assistant end of it. And then now today, the, the roles have, have changed differently. And let, let me take a step back. As far as the, the partnership that we agreed into when we did this, and I don't know if this is information that, that you're, you're wanting, 
but we did a uh, you know a 50-50 partnership. We met with our attorney. We formed our PLLC right from the get-go, and it started that. And then today, as far as our current roles, he is oversees more of the traditional side. You know, he was very in tune with the. the we live in a, uh, a retirement community. Not all of the sales, but we're surrounded with some cities and a lot of. Uh, age-restricted retirement communities. So he was at the time doing a lot of business in those areas. And, and as the default started to rise, the original arrangement was going to be he would focus on the traditional listings, still staying active in the Sun City communities, and I would start going after more of the short sales, and that led to REO and went from there. So today the roles are he still oversees that the, takes any traditional listings that we may get, which you know, at any given time, we will carry about uh, about 10, typically, of regular sales. So it's not a huge part of our inventory I- anymore. We just live in an area that boomed, uh, was created during the boom. So most homes were, were constructed and purchased uh, around 2004, 2005. So most people in our marketplace are currently underwater, you know, in a short sale situation or, or uh, you know, now the REOs. So he oversees the traditional sales. I more oversee all the REO end of it. But we both jointly, as far as accountability with our buyer agents and our short sale agents, we both team up as far as the accountability goes with those. You know, we're both very involved in the meetings, running their numbers, making sure they're meeting their goals. And then I personally oversee the marketing end as well. Let's talk about your market. Where is Surprise Arizona? Surprise Arizona is actually considered Phoenix Metro, so we're, we're in Maricopa County within the, the Phoenix area, but we're the Northwest Valley, so we're about 35 miles northwest of, of downtown Phoenix. What's kind of going on with our current market, like, like I stated, well, when I first moved here back in 2004, I'm actually originally from Michigan, I moved up, relocated out here in 2004, there were about 40,000 people in the city of Surprise, and today we're about 120,000. You know, so you can see that it just it just exploded during the boom. The unfortunate part of that is uh, that's when everybody bought, and you know it's it's not uncommon at all that we meet with sellers that are two hundred plus thousand dollars upside down in their their home. So it, it's been hit really hard as far as the short sale market goes and the REO market goes. So our business model converted really pretty hard from. Been, you know, initially doing traditional sales to uh, going very heavy into the REO and the, the short sale arena. But we're starting to see some changes there as well, too. You know, we had to dramatically change our business plan in the last 90 days. Um, for example, Maricopa County, you know, let's say we had 10,000 sales in a month, which is about average for, for the county. Usually about 7,000 of those would be REO and, and the rest would be short sale and traditional. Last month, only 2,000 were REO, and we had 6,000 short sales um, that were processed. So banks in Arizona are, are just not foreclosing on homes as, as rapidly as they were. I mean, there's still foreclosures out there, but they definitely slowed down. They're definitely pushing the short sales. Um, everything's converting the short sales. But we're also seeing a lot of our traditional sales pick up. Uh, we've actually got more traditional listings in the last 30 days than we've gotten in the last 12 months. You know, so we're seeing a lot of people that purchased kind of at the bottom of the market in 2009 where prices got hit the hardest. And let's say they're relocating or moving up or whatever the case may be. You know, they're contacting us now. They're, they're able to sell. They're not able to make a lot of money, um, maybe just walk away from the house, but do so in, in, with, with the traditional sale. So we've really had to change our whole marketing plan, business strategy um, dramatically over the last 90 days. It's, it's really, to be honest with you, it's back to the basics now for us. 
the REO market there was about 70%, and it's fallen to 20% in the last 90 days. Yeah, you know, well, here, here's an example. If you, if you look at, let's say, six months ago, for example, a slow month for me with REO would have been about 30 new assignments, 30 new property assignments. You know, I've had months as high as, as 80 assignments. Right now, I'm lucky to, to get about 10. So it's, it's really slowed down as far as the new inventory coming in. And I don't know what, what the result of that is. You know, I mean, there are still a lot of defaults out there. I don't know if the banks are wanting to give this new, you know, Hoffa program a shot with the refis. You know, I'm not exactly sure what the banks are communicating to homeowners, but we're seeing a big trend in, you know, banks trying to mod and, you know, pushing, being more aggressive to push homeowners to give short sell a shot where before there, there was zero communication for the banks. They wouldn't, they wouldn't bring up short sell as an option. So we're, we're seeing a lot of that now. And like I said, traditional, we're seeing some uptick in that as well. So it's been kind of back to the drawing board for the last few months, re-scrambling. You know, we do have a large team, you know, so we want to keep everybody busy and keep our inventory high. So in order to do so, we've had to, with the lack of uh, REO assignments, you know, we've had to really revamp everything and, and change our entire marketing strategy. Let's talk about what you've been doing in the past, and then we'll also talk some more about how you're handling this new environment today. What niche or specialization do you have in the market right now? Discluding REO, which was one of our kind of our niche over the last three or four years, but discluding REO, you know, we, we never gave, gave up sight on some of the traditional marketing efforts. You know, we, for example, we do a, a door hanger every single month. We were doing 10,000 a month. We just actually upped that to 30,000 door hangers a month. One side of it's all about short sales, benefits of a short sale, you know, what, what, how we can help them. Um, and then the flip side of that is just traditional business, you know, more of a buy, sell, invest with some different benefits to, to brand ourselves. And our thought process on that is, you know, when, when this market does uh, correct itself, which eventually it will, we haven't given up. We, we still have that brand name recognition out there. You know, when you've got, for example, in, in our city, we do ten, in, in the city of Surprise, the, the expanded 20,000 we just added are in different cities just because there's not a, a, enough homes in Surprise to cover all those. We do the, the 10,000 door hangers one month to basically half of the city, then the other half gets the next city. So every 60 days, that same house is getting that same door hanger, which has been, been a great uh, response as far as getting short sell listings for us as well. And I've got a full-time short sell specialist that handles all those for us and deals with those. And again, now we're starting to see a big uptick in, in the traditional sales on that. So that marketing piece has been well for us, just more of a, more of a farming end, you know, because our goal is when this converts back to a regular market again, and who knows when that'll be, but if and when it does, you know, those are our farm areas. We've got 20,000 rooftops, that, that or 20,000 homes, I should say, that we've been marketing and branding to all through this, this slowdown that we've had, and then, uh, you know, when it picks up, we can be a little bit more aggressive with it, but at least they've been seeing our name the entire time, even while economic times may have been a little worse. You know, another area that we go after, you know, really hard is, is our, our sphere. You know, we never gave up sight on that. You know, we still do. I know everything's moving to Internet and online and, and social media, but I'm still a big believer in, you know, you got to give them something in their hand, your, your past clients and your sphere. So I still do, a, you know, a personalized monthly newsletter every single month to, to our sphere. Now, we do email it as well to our email contacts. We don't have an address, too. We do put it on our Facebook business page. But we still mail to our sphere, and, and that's worked out well, too, you know. And, and one thing that we do is 
we adopt every buyer. So like for all, all these REO transactions, for example, you know, an average month is about 30 REO closings for us. Uh, and we don't represent both sides on the majority of those. So everybody that's buying one of those from me, even though they're represented with another agent, they're adopted into my database because NAR shows us that about 85% of agents are not going to stay in touch with their past clients. And then they're, they're in our database. And, and we get calls every single month, you know, several calls from, from homeowners that say, hey, you sold us this house a few years ago. You know, we're ready to sell again. Can we set up a, a time to meet? We'll look, at, we'll look it up in our system. And we had the house listed, but they actually were represented by a different buyer's agent. So that, that's worked out very well for us. And, of course, we're, we are heavy on the Internet marketing as well. We're, we're out there pretty much in every site you can, you can think of. You know, that's just where everything's going. You know, over 80% of, of buyers now are finding their homes on, online. So between Google AdWords for our website, getting our SEO up there, in addition to that, we do uh, zip codes on Trulia that we purchase, realtor.com, homes.com and several of the other big sites to keep the, the internet leads up high as well. Let's go back and talk about a couple of those ideas. Let's talk about the door hangers some more first. You mentioned that you're going out and putting up 10,000 door hangers a month. Who's doing that? Is someone in your office doing that? Or are you doing that? Or are you outsourcing that? It's kind of a game of red light, green light. So as the return pays off, you know, you can start adding more to it and paying a company. Um, in the beginning, I teamed up with a, a title company and I got a great deal on getting them printed and I would actually staple rubber bands to them because I, I couldn't, uh, really didn't have the money to go and, and have Office Max even punch them. So it was just about keeping the cost very low and, and I would on my spare time just you know, go out and get some exercise and try to walk 100 homes a day and deliver those myself. So a lot of the marketing and prospecting that I did in the beginning was all done by myself. But as the business started to grow, you know, slowly I'd bring on a, a new person to help with that marketing piece. So currently, I, I do have a local company that goes out there and delivers all those. It takes them for 10000 actually takes them about three weeks. They can get out about 500 a day. Depending on the weather, you know, Arizona in the summertime, it gets, gets pretty hot out here. So they, they can only deliver for, for a few hours at a time in the summer. Uh, summer months, but currently we do have a professional service doing that. But door hangers, by far, we have found are the most cost-effective way to to reach homeowners. For example, if I go on to a mail service company and I'm going to send out postcards, by the time it gets created, it gets posted on it, the whole nine yards, you know, you, you can you can be 40, 50 cents a, a piece. Where the door hangers, it really costs us about 10 cents a door to have them delivered. You know, so the print costs are low. Again, we team up with a title company, so we, we get some discounts on the print costs. Then at 10 cents a door, it, it's, it's, you know, half the cost of, of any type of mailer that we could possibly do. And, and the other benefit about that is the homeowner has to actually physically remove it off its door. So you're going to get a few more seconds of a look than you will if it's a postcard that's in the mail that, you know, may or may not even get a glance, just end up in the trash can. The 10 cents, does that include the printing? It does not. If you want some hard costs, 10000 a month costs me about 1600 bucks. And it's $600 for, for the printing and the cutting of the postcards and then $1,000 to have them delivered. When you were putting the door hangers up, were you knocking on the door and talking to the homeowner? No, you know, I haven't. And, you know, I know a lot of uh, realtors are big proponents of that. I, I personally have never been a door knocker. You know, anything I do, I try to put myself in, in consumer shoes and I know you know, when I'm at home with, with my wife and my kids, you know, the last thing I want to do is have somebody knocking on my door, you know, and, and have to go out and speak with them. And I, I'm just not very receptive to it personally. So, you know, I, I just try to show 
you know, if I don't appreciate it, I'm sure other people aren't going to going to appreciate it and disturbing their their family time. And people are just so busy anymore. So no, I've never uh, never actually knocked on the door. You know, if they're standing in the driveway washing their car, something like that, I may hand it to them and, and you know have a few minute conversation with them. But I've never actually actually never door knocked in my career. So it's just been uh, when I was doing it personally, just throwing them right on the door, rubber band them to the, the door, and on to the next. And that way, too, I could get so much more done, just trying to keep up the pace and, and to hit 100 homes in a day when you're walking them by yourself. That, that would take me you know, a good hour and a half or so, so it takes some time. You've got these folks putting these door hangers up. How do you make sure they're not just taking your door hangers and throwing them in the trash can? How do you make sure that they're actually getting up on the doors? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question because we have had that. We we have had it where, you know, they just wind up in a dumpster somewhere. You know, we've had companies come to us and approach us and say, oh, you know, we, we GPS all of our employees. We know where they're at. We're watching them, and, and it ends up being, you know, quite the opposite. So it, it is important to get to know the door service company that, you, that you're working with, get to know them on a personal level, you know, level, interview them pretty thoroughly, get some testimonials from, get some clients that they're currently delivering for, call up those those clients and those businesses and, and make sure that they're happy with it and see what kind of return they're getting. Everybody's area may be a little more or less receptive to it. So definitely give them a call. And then we, and the, the door hanger company that, that we work with, they do that and they, they hand out our numbers. I've been contacted by numerous other businesses, whether it's a cable company or a dry, dry cleaner or a restaurant, to ask about our, our uh, satisfaction with this company. So definitely do that. And as much of a pain as it is, you do need to drive them in the beginning. So in the beginning, they would basically, I supply them with the maps that I want them to go to. And every day when they're done, they have to report back to me, you know, hey, we hit this subdivision or this area was worked. So I know exactly where they were. I can drive up and down the street, you know, to make sure that they're actually hanging on the doors. So we did that the first few drops. And then after that, we, you know, we we built up that, that relationship where we trust and we know we're confident they're getting out there. And of course, the return, you know, I mean, if we've, if if we get zero calls after doing ten thousand, we know something something weird is up when we normally get about fifteen calls. So if you put up ten thousand, you're receiving about fifteen calls. And, you know, in the beginning that was true. I mean, we we would uh, and more calls than that. It would it would actually generate to about fifteen listings when we started doing this about a year and a half ago. Today it's a, it's about half that. We're, we're we actually just completed a ten thousand drop and we got seven out of it. And again, it could be because holidays are, are approaching. The hard part that I don't know is, is I don't know what the banks are communicating to these homeowners right now. And we do have the, the new uh, HAFA program rolling out where, where they're able to refi. The 120% uh, value has been lifted. So I don't know if the, the banks are being more aggressive at trying to mod- modify these loans for um, a lot of the homeowners. But the urgency isn't quite as there today as it was a year and a half ago, although it's still great. I mean, I'll, I'll do them. Um, all day long at seven listings per 1,500, it's still you know a very good return. The reason that you're doing the door hanger is cost. Have you tried to do direct mail to do a comparison? Yeah, we uh, actually, when we started the door hanger, we were doing the door hangers, and then we were also doing a direct mailer. We would get the NOD list, so basically they're, they're direct mailed to anybody that, that was in the city that was in default. And we had a, a, you know, a different email, a different number, on those cards so we could track where each one was coming from. Plus, when we get the call, that, that's always our first question is, is 
how, how they got information so we can track all of those. But the re, the return was was bad. You know, we we did it for six total months every month, and I think it generated one or two listings total. I mean, it, it just it, the the return was uh, was far less, and it was double triple the cost. And do you think that's because you were talking to these people after they were already in trouble, and other agents were already talking to them? And your door hangers are catching people before they get into trouble? You know, that could be, and that's that's a good question. I don't know, to be honest with you. But one thing that I'm currently doing right now is we are doing, uh, in addition to the door hangers, we are starting to do short sale packages that are going to, you know, my field techs are going to actually deliver to the doorstep. So there's a, a custom letter with two reports within the package that just talk about the benefits of a short sale, you know, what to expect, and, and just gives them a lot of good, helpful information. And those, we still are going to be targeting people that are late on their payments. However, we, we've got a new program provided from one of our, our vendors that we, we use where we're able to get them on the 30 days late. So they're not in the foreclosure stage yet. It's not public information. So we're hoping that that's, you know, there, there's not a lot of other agents out there that, that are going after those just because it's not a public record yet. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. But that definitely could be. It's just the door hangers have, have been great for us. So we, we just decided through the additional funds and, and that we were putting into the mailers to the door hangers because they were just so much more effective. Just so I have it in my own mind, it seemed to me that your test was you blanket an area in all the homes with the door hangers versus go out just to the NOD, the notice of default, people by direct mail. Did you try to blanket an area with direct mail? No, we have not. Other than we do several marketing pieces a year that really aren't, there's not a call to action. It's just more of a getting the name out there to the whole community, whether it's a holiday card or something like that. But no, we, we did not blanket the direct mail. Is this area your geographic farm? That's the ultimate goal. I would say yes in that you know, we've been doing it for a year and a half now. There's 20,000 homes, basically, that we've been targeting in the last year and a half. So every other month, each home is, is getting the door hanger on there currently. And the ultimate goal is is once things turn around, and it may be even sooner than that, we may start doing, doing every, every uh, home every month with the full 20,000. But the intent is that we do adopt those full-on as our geographical farm, which will be much more, I don't want to say aggressive, but we'll touch those areas much more, you know, with a different campaign, you know, with door hangers mixed with different newsletters, community newsletters, postcards, you know, treat it more as a, as a traditional farm area. So currently the only exposure you're putting out into your farm is the door hangers? Correct. Yep. Other than our sphere, which isn't really our farm area, but we do send out a lot of different pieces to, to our sphere. Let's talk about your sphere. What type of marketing are you doing to your sphere? What we're doing currently is we do a monthly newsletter every month. Now, the monthly newsletter isn't about, you know, hey, look how great we are, look how many homes we've sold. You know, it's, it's really just what we feel is just more a lot of good home tips and, and just useful information. For example, this month, the, the one that went out was, you know, just some different cheap decorating ideas for Thanksgiving and different tips on, on prepping Thanksgiving dinner. Just a lot of things that value that every homeowner can use. I mean, there'll be a little blurb in there about us in each one, but it's a four-page newsletter that goes out every month that we, we actually have a company that creates it for us just due to time. The company's called ResultEye.com. 
I think it costs about 20 bucks a month, and they put all the content in there. I just get an email link that I can send to my printer and have it printed. But in addition to that, everybody in our sphere, we also do a, do the e-newsletter, so we email it to them as well as send them the hard copy. And then uh, we, we try to hit, you know, about another 15 to 20 pieces out of the year, whether it be, a, you know, a holiday card, an update of what's going on in the community, you know, just different items. Uh, with that, we do a lot of email blast of the sphere as far as community updates, market updates, what's going on whether it be real estate related or just what's going on in the community. You know, there, there's, you know, we live in a community where there's a lot of uh, sports events, you know, spring training, baseball, tennis, we a lot of golf out here. So if there's any special events going on, just to kind of keep them up to date on what's going on in, in the general area. How big is your database? Right now, and it's growing about 30 people a month on average, but right now it's about 1,700. How does somebody get into that database? They're your past clients. You also mentioned you have the buyers on the other side of your transactions, your co-op buyer, when you're representing the seller, you're bringing those people into this database as well? Correct. Yep. So anybody that we sell a home to, whether it's our personal client or, uh, example, if I have a, an REO property, a foreclosure property that I sell, another agent represents the buyer, that buyer buys that house, they're immediately adopted into our database. So they go in there, I would say 90%. The majority of the clients in our database are who we've sold homes to, whether it's adopted, adopted that client or personally sold to. But what we started doing recently is being more aggressive with it. Any, anybody that we run a listing appointment with you know, goes in there. Where before we would put them into a different campaign and not include them within our monthly newsletters and some of our spear marketing, they were just in a, in a different marketing campaign. What are you doing on the internet to generate leads and how's that system working? It's been going well. What we do right now, we've actually recently revamped and changed this as well. One major reason is, you know, inventory is a little lower, so we don't have as many signs out there. So sign calls are down. So we need to, we need to make sure that we're generating the leads to keep our buyer agents busy. So we just bought actually 50% of one of the zip codes here in Surprise through Trulia. With our contact requests that we've gotten through truly over the last year or so on our personal properties, those leads tend to be pretty good leads. So we decided to go full in with them as far as purchasing leads, doing banner ads. So we're on Trulia. We also do all the enhancements and, and some banners on Realtor.com, more Homes.com, Remax leads. And then with our website, we do some Google AdWords, basically a pay-per-click that generates you know, anywhere to 30 to 40 leads a month as well. Every marketing piece that we do, everything out there has our website on it. For example, I've got a big moving truck that we don't, we don't use to move. It's actually full of all of our signs and signposts, but we just we move it all over the town with our website blasted all over it. So everything that goes out, every piece that goes out has our website out there just to generate that traffic. And with our website, we uh, utilize Real Pro Systems they actually have a program there where you can do a, a CRM back end, so basically a contact management system on the back end. But the great thing about it, especially when you have a team, is basically I can put my floor schedule on there of each team member. As those leads come in there, they're automatically sent out to whoever that buyer agent is on floor for that, that time period. And it doesn't matter if they come from our website or if it's a truly a realtor.com or homes.com. They all go into the website. They're automatically logged into a campaign. All their information is captured. Then it goes out to my buyer agent. The great thing for me as a team leader is I can go in the back end and I can see 
what my agents are doing. You know, they, they have to log in the back system to notify the client. They have to note if they, they've left a voicemail, if they've called, what kind of actions they've taken to, to follow up on these leads so I can make sure they're getting worked. And if they're not, I can reassign them to another agent immediately. You know, because we all know with the Internet leads, you, you know, they, they want quick responses, quick answers. So if you're going to wait, and if you get it at 9 a.m. and you're, gonna, you're out showing homes and you're going to wait till you get home at, at 8 p.m., that lead's gone. You know, they, they want responses within minutes. So we're trying to be very aggressive on that end of it. How often are you reviewing and tracking your agent responses so that you can rotate those leads out to someone else? Every day. One of the shift changes I, I had to make, I had a staff member that was in charge of doing all the utilities and a lot of the repair bids for the bank owns, which again, it was a 40-hour week position. And with the slowdown now, it's probably a 10-hour week position. So what we've done is added some additional responsibilities to her side of it. So now every day she actually goes in there, logs in there, and has to give me a report. And it shows it all on there. I can actually see when they've logged in the system last, every action they're taking in, the, in the, within the system. We're monitoring that every day. You know, it used to be over the last few years, which was a mistake and regret on my end, but uh, it was so busy with, with the REOs and just trying to manage that end of it that uh, you know, the accountability was lost with our buyer agent staff. I mean, that, that's just being honest with everybody. You know, we just kind of, everybody just took the lowest hanging fruit and ran with it. And anymore, that's just not the case. A lead is a lead until they either buy a property from you or, or tell you to quit calling them or quit, quit emailing them. So now we've got the systems back into place and just really tracking these numbers very strongly to make sure that everybody's, you know, everybody's out there doing their job and, and these leads aren't wasted. You know, because as, as what we're seeing right now with the trends going forward, there's not going to be a slow week. Let's say, for example, a year ago, would each one of my buyer agents may have got 100 leads a, a week. Now they're maybe getting 15 to 20. We need to ensure that these are being worked. And, and we're setting up other, other systems with our buyer agents. For example, right now, if you do not have two properties in escrow going in the next month, you're cut off from leads for 30 days. So then our agents that are performing, that are working the leads very hard, they're being rewarded. In your prior system over the last year, before you started to really focus on the accountability on the buyer agents, you were still performing. You closed 25% of your transactions were buyers. That's about 100 transactions. So it was performing over on the buyer side, correct? Yeah, it was. But, uh, you know, in my personal opinion, to have a balanced real estate team, for every listing sold, there should be a buyer transaction sold. With the REO, it just it happened so fast. And we had to grow that end of it so fast. And, you know, there was a time I was working from 4 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night seven days a week, and I just, just the focus couldn't be there like it needed to be. You know, I, I had to focus on, on managing the other, the other ends of it. So, yeah, it wasn't that they were doing bad, but there was definitely a lot of room for improvement. And, and since we've been doing this now the last few months, it's been a night-and-day difference. You know, these guys are working really hard. They're working their leads, and it's starting to pay off. You mentioned a moving truck, but it's not a moving truck that you give out to your clients to move. It's more of a moving billboard? Right, correct. Yeah, we, uh, we, we checked into when we got it initially. We thought about allowing clients to use it. But after you know, meeting with, with our insurance company and just the liability on it, we just decided to, to make the decision that we weren't going to, uh, going to use it for that. So it, it is just a mobile billboard. Actually, in our city, they, they, don't, they don't allow billboards. Otherwise, I'd probably sell the, the truck and get a billboard. So they don't allow billboards. So we wanted something with just some more exposure out there. So 
We just park it through all different parking lots through through the town. Uh, once in a while, my fuel tax will take it. We don't have them take it daily just because just it's a gas hog. You know, moving it throughout the town and, and just getting that exposure. And now, to be honest with you, I've had we've had it now for, for probably three years, and I, I can't think of one single call I've ever gotten from anybody saying, hey, I saw your moving truck, I, I want to buy or sell a home. But, you know, we get a lot of, we ask them, how did you hear about us? And they say, oh, we see your stuff everywhere. You know, that just helps to that brand recognition. When they, when they get our door hangers, seeing our moving truck around town and seeing our signs all around town, I think it just helps helps add that brand recognition, helps give them comfortability to making the right choice. You mentioned sign calls. Has sign calls been valuable to you? Yeah, sign calls the last few years have been our best source of buyer leads. But as inventory comes down, right now I have probably, I'm going to guess, around 80 signs out there between active and pending properties, where over the last year it's been double that. So they definitely decreased. But they're still a big part of our business. We, we probably get two to four sign calls a day. One thing that we did add over the last two years that, that's been very good for us is an automated number. We use a system called VoicePad. It's a local number. It's not a 1-800 recorder number. It's actually a local number, and it's through an IDX system. So they call that number, and that number will instruct them, and it will give them either English or Spanish. And then they're instructed to enter the house number, and then it pulls that information from the MLS, and we'll give them the basic information, bedrooms, bathrooms, the price. It's auto-generated through the system, so it's not something, you know, I used to use the 1-800 uh, IVR numbers back in the day, but it got to a point where it's just so time-consuming, always having to record the message and then change it if there's a price change, where this one just automatically happens through the service. And then immediately we get a text and an email of uh, what property they called on, that contact uh, person, so you know, we can, you know, if our buyer agents are, are able to jump on them right away, they're able to call that person while they're still in the driveway. The other neat thing about that system is uh, on the back end of it, we can actually, and we've got a bunch of cards made that are titled buyer hotline number. And there's that number on there, or we'll take their cell phones and program that in there for them, you know, property hotline number, whatever you want to call it, and tell them, hey, any sign that you see while you're driving out there, if you're curious about the property, call this number, I'll instruct you to the house number, enter that in and it'll give you all the property information and then we can go in the back end and track where they've been and where they're calling on. So for example, if they say, you know, we're really looking for a home here in Surprise, well we find out they're looking, calling a lot of homes in Peoria, which is the city just east of us, we can at that point have that conversation and see if they want us to expand their search areas and see if they, you know, if they had any interest and would like to schedule showing. So the goal is to keep them off of other agent signs out there. And it's really simplified your system of listing a property. As you said, you don't have to use a unique ID now in the old IVR system. Do you put a brochure up on your signs, or is it just the sign with the phone numbers? Right now, it's just the sign with the phone numbers. However, now that our market's changed so dramatically here in the, in the last 90 days, we're going back to a lot of the basics that we used to do. So we're getting new signs made with our built-in embedded QR codes on the signs. I'm not sure if I'm going to go to a full-on flyer box yet or just get a laminated flyer made and have it somehow attached or secured to the signpost with that individual QR code and all that property information or if we're going to do flyer boxes. But one way or another, we are going back to and actually are in the works right now of getting that created and putting that together. So we are going to go back to that. Are you generating business from expired listings? 
Yeah, and that was one thing I forgot to mention in the beginning. When I first got in the business, my number one source of leads were expireds. I created actually an expired letter that I use. I get in the office, and again, when you first start, you may not have the financial backing to hire assistants and, and do all this. So in the beginning, you're kind of doing everything yourself. So I'd get in at 5 in the morning and spend about you know an hour or two stuffing envelopes for the expired letters. And you know within the first six months of doing that, now this was back in, uh, in 2005 and 2006, you know, I had 20 listings. I mean, it would generate three to four listings every single month consistently going after expireds. We quit doing them about two years ago just because the only thing it seemed to generate was short sale listings, which at that time we, we were not necessarily going after short sales. You know, we, we decided to go back after them a little bit later, but now we are heavily going back to our expired letters. And then basically how that letter works is at the top I've got a line that says sometimes even the nicest of homes do not always sell. So they know right off the bat that, hey, there's, it's not your house. And then I'll actually uh, borrow the front picture of the property from the MLS, copy and paste it on the letter so there's a picture of their house on the letter, and pull their name from the tax record. So they'll say, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And then there's some verbiage in there about the market that may or may not have been their home, that the reason the property didn't sell, and just asking for an opportunity for a listing interview to, to see what we can do differently and how we can help them. And then we have about five or six bullet points on there that or stuff that we do differently than any other agents do. And I don't even know if it's stuff that we do differently. It's just stuff that most realtors don't point out that they do. Most homeowners think the agent puts on the MLS or the sign the yard and that's it. In my mind, it's the agent's fault that the seller thinks that because they don't express to them, hey, here's all the different items we're going to do for you to sell your home, and they don't give them progress reports on, on each item that they're doing. So we just point out those different items that may or may not have been done and then personally sign it. And, and one of the biggest things, at least in my personal opinion, that, that the letters work so successful, um, one, the letter itself is personalized with a picture of their house, but to get them to open it, you know, that's a whole other key. So we actually handwrite each individual in an envelope. So it's not labeled, it's not pre-printed, and it just seems, it seems to get a way bigger response. You know, if I get anything in the mail that's handwritten, I open it. So we're going back to that pretty heavy. Now that's actually another thing that our, our utility and repair specialist on the REO side is, is doing now. But they, given the amount of expired, you know, we used to mail out the 30, 30 plus a day. Right now in our city, we're probably only seeing about three to five expired properties a day. The number's less, but we are going back to going after those. In that program, do you just send out the initial letter and that's it? Or are there other items that you either mail out or calls that you make, other actions that you take? No. In the past, it was just that initial letter. We may have to add to it. We'll have to see how the return goes now. There may have to be a series of follow-up letters, follow-up postcards, and then even a property visit potentially. But the letter got such a big response initially that I just never felt the need to do a follow-up with it. And one thing I will do, I will say, is we'll do those in about every six months We'll pull all the expired that expired in the last six months. If they haven't relisted with us and they haven't relisted with anybody else, we'll resend the letter. So some of those will get a second letter. Let's shift our focus to a large source of business for you over the last few years, and that's REO. It's accounting for over half of your business, or it has been. So it's a pretty big chunk of business. People have a lot of questions about REO. Let's try to break it down. First of all, how many banks are you currently working with? Right now, I've got about three banks that have been sending us inventory over the last probably six months. At one point, I was listing properties for 28 different banks. 
but you know, a lot of those banks have, have went away, got bought out. Currently, there's only a few out of all of them that we've done business with over the, the years that are either still in business today and still have properties that they're able to assign. You've mentioned that your assignments have fallen off here recently to a low of about 10 a month? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And at its height, you were doing about 80 a month? Well, no. I would say we've received up to that. For a while there, a busy month was around 50. The busiest month that we ever had was about 88 new assignments. 30 would have been a slow month. That's probably over the last two years that, that it was that. When I first got into REO, it was about, about a year and a half before it really started taking off. You know, we started off getting a, a few assignments a month, and then it kind of turned into a few a week, and then we kind of stayed at about, about 20 assignments a month for a good year there, and then we actually were able to get in with a few different, different banks, and it just kind of took off from there. How many assignments do you currently have? Right now, I've got about 70 total REO properties. That includes pre-market, you know, what's an eviction pre-market, what's on the market, and what's pending. We're talking to people across the country. All these markets are different. They're in different phases and different cycles. There are markets where this business is picking up right now and people are interested in getting into REO. So they'd like to know, how did you get into REO? Could we go back and talk about how you first opened the door? How did you get into the REO business? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I will say it was very difficult. You know, I, I fought getting into REO, to be honest with you. I had some great mentors at the time that were telling me, get into REO, you know, pushing me to get into it. But I fought it. You know, I'd see all these REO agents around town that were, were carrying triple the inventory I had, but they were carrying so much more expenses. And at the time, the banks weren't pricing them right. They weren't selling. My expired systems were working good. I was carrying 20-plus properties and, and doing very well and, and not working 80 hours a week. So, you know, it just it was tough for me to uh, to be sold on it initially, where my mistake was they saw the, the writing on the wall and I didn't. I didn't realize it was going to get near as bad as it did. I don't think any of us really realized it was going to get that bad, but I truly didn't think it was going to hit the levels that it did. So I, I was scrambling. You know, once it got to the point, you know, one day I woke up and I just had the realization that if I don't get in there, it's going to be very tough for me to... Uh, to, to stay in the business or, or to continue at least growing my business at the rate I want to grow it. So it took me about six months to get my first account, and that was spending about three hours a day prospecting and going after them. And how I landed my first account, I had a good friend of mine who was an agent in the office who's an investor. He, he's just interested in, in fixing and flipping and, and, and rental properties. So I asked him if I could just start digging through all his HUDs on these bank-owned property deals that, that he was buying up with the hopes that somehow an asset manager's contact would have been left on a HUD because it happens all the time. So I started reviewing his HUDs. He'd give me every HUD, and then after about a month, I came across the, an asset manager's email, a direct contact with a bank, and I started emailing that asset manager, just emailing him. In the beginning, it was every couple of days, and then after that, it was every week after a few months, he, uh, he finally decided to, to give me an opportunity to give me a shot. And actually, another bank after that, which was uh, Nationwide REO Brokers, same thing. Got, got a contact off of a HUD. I was very aggressive with uh, contacting that agent. And again, it wasn't, I should say, aggressive in the amount of emails and not giving up on emailing him. Each email went like, very experienced in the area. I have a team, even though at that time I really didn't have a, a strong REO team, but tried to lead them to believe that I did have the team and I was always available if there's anything they need. If there was any agents that were not performing in their area, I'd love a shot. 
and promise they won't be disappointed, and that sort of thing. After a few months with him, I mean, just keep emailing, email, email. Finally, I, I emailed him one last email. I said, just give me one shot. I promise I'll quit bugging you. And within two minutes, I had an assignment. I said, okay, here you go. <laughs> so, so I got the assignment, and uh, you know, then it turned out to be a great account. And it went from there. And so that's kind of how it started. I mean, I went and I, I bought the list, you know, where, where they say you see all these email pops up or you, you Google REO and, you know, these lists for three and a bucks, you can buy the top 100 asset manager names and number contact lists. You know, I bought those, which, which weren't really successful for me. So the, the kind of intro into it for me was the HUDs. One other great site that I'll give you that has been phenomenal, actually, I, I've actually was fortunate enough to get about, about half of my accounts from this site, is REO Network. Dot com. Now you have to go on there, you have to enter some information, and then they have to accept you on the site. And then if they accept you, then you have to pay a, a fee. I think it's about 1200 bucks for the year. So to get in, it's not cheap. But basically, it's where asset managers can find agents in their area. So if they don't, if they don't have an agent, and I'm lucky because I'm kind of on the, the outskirts of Phoenix Metro, so a lot of these agents that or asset managers that may be dealing more centrally and have a, a property that's out a little further, that's where they're going to look. And like I said, I, I've landed about half my banks from there. And in there, you just go, you put a profile by yourself, you can add a picture, you can add you know, your team stats, your turnaround times. And in this business, it's fake until you make it. You know? So you know, when I did my first profile in there, I, I wasn't selling hundreds of REOs a year or, you know, or even one REO a year. You know? So a lot of it is looking at other, other agents, profiles on there, taking ideas from theirs, and, and again, not copying it, kind of tweaking it to your own, you know, but make it sound good, not being necessarily untruthful, but making it sound good that you do have the experience. And most agents do have the experience. If you've never listed an REO out there, the chances are you've been on the buy side of a ton of these. So you know, you know the time frames. You know what it entails. So that's been a very successful site for me as well. This very first listing that you took you were going after a HUD asset manager. Was it a HUD listing? No, no, and I, I apologize about that. It was on the HUD 1, which is the settlement statement. So I apologize about that if I was confusing it. So it was not within the HUD. It was just the, the settlement statement. So basically when he would get his closing package, I would review the closing package and review all the documents in there, and you just luckily stumble across a, a contact that shouldn't, uh, you know, Whoever put it in there that wasn't supposed to, because these asset managers don't want their contact information out there. So it's not supposed to be out there, but somehow it winds up on some of the paperwork here and there. You know, you got to go after that stuff when you get it, you know, if you're trying to fight to get, in, get into that business. How did you make your introduction to him? Did you say, I found your email address on a HUD-1 closing statement? Yeah, I did say that, you know, just had a recent closing within our company. My company represented the buy side because it was our company. I just got your contact information that was on the HUD-1 and just wanted to give you an introduction about myself and about my team and just went from there. You did this all through email? Yep. Never gotten a phone number. Plus, you know, asset managers, people don't realize they're extremely, extremely busy. So I, I've got some asset managers that are, that are handling, you know, five, 600 properties in their portfolio. They may not be too receptive if you pick up the phone and, and bug them. At least an email, they can either delete it or when they're slow, take a glance at it. I didn't want to uh, tick anybody off by calling because I knew that their volume was so high and may not be the best way to go. How long before you got a response from one of your emails? Did you get a response on the first email or did you have to send emails for a couple months first? 
No, it was months and months. I mean, we were probably talking uh, at least at least 90 days before I got any communication back. And then it was, you know, with the first bank, which was actually accredited home lenders at the time. You know, I got a response after about 90 days of saying, hey, I'm receiving emails. Thank you for contacting us. We'll, we'll keep you in mind. And once I got a little communication form, it became a thing of, you know, around the holidays, Thanksgiving coming up. Um, you know, hey, just just to let you know, I'm in town. I'm around this weekend through the Thanksgiving holiday. If something comes up, you can't get a hold of one of your agents, and you need something, I am available and I can handle it for you, and I'd be happy to help you. Another thing I've done before is offer free BPOs, and I'm not going to do a ton of those, but you go to the asset manager and say, hey, you know, just to to establish that relationship and and show you that I am a hard worker and I can meet your timelines and I have excellent quality of work you know, I'll do three free updated BPOs for you, which saves them money and and can help you get you in the door as well. Did you perform BPOs before you received your original assignments? I was through Equator, accepting BPO assignments and through, you know, through Clear Capital, all these companies and and doing a lot of them. But to be honest with you, the paid BPO services I have found, at least in my experience, have never resulted in, in landing an account. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. But they did give you experience on how to do a BPO. Absolutely, because that's one of the most important pieces of the REO is, is that BPO. So yeah, you definitely need to be experienced on how to complete a BPO, how the systems are. Absolutely, it's a big piece of it. If you're trying to get an REO and you've never done a BPO report, you need to get a good dozen of them under your belt. So when you do get that assignment, they know you're not a newbie to the business. You know, they, they want to see that you know what you're doing, the quality works there. They can trust your opinion and your values. You know, it's not just my BPO that they're taking. So every bank is either going to order either an appraisal to judge against your BPO or a second opinion BPO from a neutral party. So they do have another valuation to compare it to. You know, you do want to show them that, that you have a high knowledge of the area and obviously know how to, how to fill out the report correctly and thoroughly. You had probably had a concept that some of the other folks have, which is if you do BPOs, that'll lead into assignments. And your statement was doing BPOs did not lead into assignments, but it did educate you on how to do a BPO. Right. And that's my personal experience. And I've talked with other agents that have stated that it has led in, into REO assignments. My personal experience, I did hundreds of them. I actually had my own dedicated BPO agent on the team that we had a split on the fee. And they were completed in my name, so the asset manager thought they were coming for me. But we, we did hundreds and hundreds, and it never resulted in one single listing or getting approved with an REO account. You talked about the fact that you did some research, you did some investigative work, you acted as a detective, and you found an email address for asset manager. You initiated a campaign. Eventually, after 90 days or so, that led to your first assignment. How did you parlay that into the empire that you have now? How did you add the next asset manager or get more business out of the one that you were working with? Yeah, it kind of snowballed. You know, it, Well, one, I will tell you, I wasn't aware of REO Network, the, the website I gave you. If I would have been signed up on there from the beginning, 
I may have been able to, to secure some different accounts and, and gain some different accounts before going through the, the settlement statements. But that was kind of an after-the-fact thing. That was a big part of it. But the other thing is, you know, you, you start getting in with the banks, for example, and now everybody's on Equator today. But back then, everybody wasn't on Equator. I mean, it's much harder to get in with, with the bank today than it was four or five years ago. But you get into Equator, you, you start putting your profile out there, it's getting views from other banks, other asset managers that have a need in, in your, that zip code. And you can buy zip codes in there, which I've totally downsized that because I, I threw away a lot of money and found out that that wasn't very effective either. Same thing with the certifications. Threw a lot of money out of all, all the certifications, which didn't result in, in any new business. So, you know, asset managers finding that way, finding a FRIO network, and, 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 and it just never stopped as far as my prospecting. You know, I kept the settlement statement thing going. And, and then, you know, one thing that also has been beneficial is, you know, going to some of these REO conferences. Now, I've never landed an asset manager at an REO conference. But what I have done and it's been successful at is meeting other agents all over the country that, you know, are at a level that, that I wanted to become. And, and we were able to establish a relationship and, and network and talk and give you some helpful insight on the banks that they're in with, or you know, go to this site, sign up for this site, you know, put your application in, that sort of thing. Did that network of people that you met at the conferences, the network of top agents, did they ever make an introduction for you to an asset manager? I've been approached to do that, to, actually, from other agents that said, hey, if you introduce this to me, I'll, I'll do that introduction with you. I've never felt personally comfortable doing that because at the end of the day, it could wreck my reputation with that bank. I mean, I, I know these people. I, I, well, I've met them, had lunch with them, but I don't, I don't really know their business model. I don't know them on an extremely personal level, and, and I've never wanted to, to risk that relationship with the current bank. So I've never asked anybody to do that. I have been asked by, by one other agent, which you know, I had to decline just because I, I don't personally feel comfortable giving anybody a recommendation that, that I truly don't know. So you basically broke into this market without any connections. You just did it by the school of hard knocks. You went in there and aggressively prospected X number of hours a day until you started generating some business. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and in, in the other agents in my area that had the REO, they guarded it with their life. You know, they weren't helping. You know, they, they weren't willing to to help or give anybody insight. Which I understand. You know, at the end of the day, we're all each other's competition. Yeah. So it wasn't. Uh, you know, I wasn't given any magic contact or, or uh, any magic website to sign up on, other than REO Network. Like I said, that's been huge for me. I haven't got anything off of it probably in the last 12 months. But for the first few years of getting an REO. It, a very good site to be on and, and worked out very well for me. But again, inventory has shrunk so dramatically out here. You know, for example, in, in Maricopa County, last year at this time, there's about 60,000 homes on the market. Right now, there's about 20,000. The assets just aren't there. Whether it's short sale or, or REO, we, the inventory is just not out there currently. So in, in different markets, it could be totally different. You know, somebody's in a market right now where they're starting to see, just see the beginnings of the defaults, and, and defaults are really high, and they're seeing that, then that would probably be a phenomenal site to, to get involved in. Are you working only with private banks, or are you also working with government entities? Both. Which government entities are you working with? At this time, Fannie Mae. How did you get in with Fannie Mae? Actually, they contacted me that was one that was a contact through the site. They were looking for new agents to sign up for my area. 
you still have to go through all the application process, which was pretty intense. And it took probably about a year from the date that they contacted me before it solidified to anything. There are a lot of long time horizons that you had to work with to get this thing going. You said they contacted you from the internet. Do you mean that REO Network site? Correct, yep. Maybe you should pay them a bonus. REO Network, that's worked out well for you. Yeah, but again, I mean, it's just like anything. If I get a sign call, it could be a buyer wanting to buy a million dollar home, but if I don't follow up with it and do my job to to follow up with it and stay on top of it, it's not going to solidify anything. So, you know, it's not one of those things where somebody's going to get into contact and next thing you know, they're just going to start flooding in. You know, you, you have to be proactive, get back in touch with them, get everything that they need, and work your tail off. People don't realize how hard REO is. It's, it's tough. I mean, I, I live three miles away from my office and I would go three three plus days at a time without seeing my wife and kids because I would leave before they're awake and I'd get home well after they're they were sleeping. It definitely wasn't an easy road. What mistakes do you see agents making who are trying to get into the REO business? I guess the the biggest thing would be how you approach it. Again, if you're if you're trying to work the phones, most asset managers probably are not going to appreciate that just because they do carry such a high amount of inventory and their time's so tight. So going after email, but doing it in kind of a passive way, you know, be, being aggressive in the sense of your follow-up campaigns, but doing it in a very passive way. So not saying, hey, I'm the best guy in town and you give me your listings, you know, but doing it in a way that it just lets them know that you're available, you know, just, just be that hardworking, nice guy and show them that you're available because you do, you know, you get into REO, yeah, and I had the same thought process when I got into it. Oh, yeah, banks are only open Monday through Friday. We never have to work weekends. They're only open 9 to 5. would be great. Well, that's not the case. So they, they need to know that you're available all days and times, weekends, you know, and they, they respond to you. Don't wait three hours to get back to them. Yeah, I'm glued in front of a computer all day long. So it's responding back to them immediately. Anything that they need, you know, if they, for example, if, if you're doing a test valuation for a bank, just got to finally get the communication with an asset manager and they ask you to do a, an updated BPO as a favor for them. You know, if they give you four days to do it, get it done in 24 hours. You know, show them that you're timely. You know, have it spot on. And, you know, because for them, yeah, you have four days to do it, but the quicker that you're able to get that back to them, the quicker they can get that value, get it on the market, get it sold, and move on to the next property. So that makes them also look extremely good. The other thing that I think the big misconception of what a lot of people don't realize is the cost associated with getting to REO. Yeah, I met with a lot of agents, and I, and I meet with a lot of agents in, in my current marketplace, whether they're with Remax or not. You know, I'm willing to help to help anybody. So when we sit down and talk, and I, I tell them really what it takes with the amount of hours, the amount of manpower, and, and financially, you know, a lot of them decide they don't want to move forward with it. And, and I had no idea getting into it that it was going to be financially and time-consuming draining as, as it was. You know, for example, last year, you know, I, I had a great year. You know, did 362 transactions, at 15 total, but went five months without a paycheck. You know, we had a lot of commissions coming in. You know, we had, we had a big year. On paper, it looked great, but I've had as much as a quarter million dollars that you're floating for utilities, cash for keys, repairs. You know, certain banks, you have to float all the money for paint, carpet, all that, and it may be you know, 60 to 90 days before you get reimbursed. Some banks are great reimbursing in a couple of weeks. Some are 30 days. Some take a long time. If an AC unit gets stolen, you know, and you've got to fork out the, the $4,000, you could be waiting, 
you know, three or four months to, to get reimbursed on that. So you also have to have, you know, the financial backings to, to get involved with it. So just be prepared for it. Do your research on it. Make sure before you put all those hours in prospecting it, that's something you truly want to get involved in. If someone were trying to plan and they were thinking about getting into the REO business, is there a number you could give them for how much they should have set aside for each assignment that they get? Per vacant property, rough numbers would be about $2,000 per vacant property. And that's going to be between utility deposits, whether it's cash for keys, landscapes. Every bank's different. You know, we do have some banks that, that pay for all that and other banks that don't. So it, it all depends on what bank you get into. But an average is about 2000 per vacant property. And how did you uh, swing that? Did you just have the money sitting in the bank? Did you have to borrow the money? Did you have a line of credit? How did you make that work for yourself? A little bit of all of it. We weren't able to get a line of credit. We, <laughs> we tried that route, but banks just don't want to, uh, you know, they weren't really receptive to it. Or if they were, it was, you know, a twenty or $30,000 line, line of credit wasn't, wasn't what we needed. So fortunately, we did, when I say we, my business partner, my father and I, you know, we were fairly successful before we got into the REO. So, and as we grew the team, we each contributed so much within reserves and, and kept that in the account. So we were fortunate enough to have a lot of the financial backing getting into it. But then last year, actually last summer, 2010, that's when we just got absolutely flooded. And, and it was very difficult. And then, like I said, we went just to be able to operate our business and, and make payroll we both had to go five months without one single paycheck. So that was the sacrifice you know, we had to incur. So the, like I said, the line of credit, nobody was out there willing to give you know, $150,000, $200,000 line of credit at that time. I mean, there was months that we had just $60,000 in just cash for keys, not counting you know, everything else. So. so you had the bootstrap. Yeah, but you know, times are tough. We knew long-term you know, it was going to be beneficial. The biggest benefit to REO, I mean, I could probably... Going to short sell, for example, and I've got a, numerous agents that I network with that have large short sell businesses that, that are much more profitable than an REO business can be, but it's building that database. You know, the, the way I can see it, it's long-term for me. You know, when I'm able to add 30 homes a month that we sell, for example, into my database, I mean, I plan on doing this for a long time to come, building that database big. Let's say it's 10, 15 years before things truly turn around, you know, at that point, my, you know, I don't know where my database will be, but if I do my job, then that's where the payoff's going to be big. Is there anything else you think that someone who's thinking about getting into REO or adding REO to their business should know about? One thing you're going to have to do is, is definitely, and again, it goes back to the, you know, the red light, green light. In the beginning, you do everything yourself, you know, because you got one, you got to learn how to do everything before you can train your staff. You know, be prepared for that. You're going to have to put in a lot of long hours because it, it is time. You know, it's not, for example, if I get a listing call and I'm getting ready to head out of town, you know, I can say, oh, I'm just going to call. I'll call you back on Monday. I'm heading out of town. We'll, we'll set something up on Monday. It doesn't work that way. If you have three days to do the task, you have three days to do the task. So be prepared for that. If you're going to get in there, you probably won't have any vacations for the first year or two of being in there until you get some good staff in there and trained. You've got to be prepared for that. But then you do have to be prepared to grow your staff, and you will have to grow it. You know, depending on on the amount of inventory you get, you may have to grow it, you know, relatively fast. So, you know, be prepared for that as well. But it is a great business to be in. You know, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't. If it wasn't a great great source of business for us. And the biggest item, like I said, is the future payoff with growing that database. But just be prepared. You know, it's it's a lot of hours, and 
a lot of work, but it can definitely pay off. Are you using a certain software program to keep that all straight? I do. I use BrokerBrain is the name of the software that we use for all of our REO. All of our inspection photos go in there. All of our BPOs are completed through that software system, unless the bank has an, an equator system or something like that where you have to do it in that system. We're able to you know, put all of our photos, all of our information. For example, I put a property in there. Like I get a new assignment, I put the property in there. And then once I click the status of that, then my field techs immediately notify, do the occupancy check, then my locksmith notified to secure the property. And if, so if it's vacant, secure, then my utility person's automatically emailed and notified to turn on utilities. Makes your life much easier. Were there any mistakes that you made when you were pursuing the REO that you could maybe tell someone to avoid? Wished I would have been a little bit more, if I would have been more prepared for it or, or had more knowledge of it getting into it, I still would have done it. So I can't even say that that's, that's a mistake. I just didn't know what I was getting into. But yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely some costly items, Main, mainly staff costly items as far as not delegating things properly or you know, having the wrong person hired for that position. You know, those are the main mistakes that I've made that, that I've had to grow from and wish I would have done differently, or mainly just staffing issues. Moving back to traditional sales, let's talk about sellers. Why would a seller hire you? What is your competitive advantage? There's a few. One, we are a full-service team that are full-time, full-service. There's a lot of part-time agents out there that clients aren't able to get a hold of. That's not the case for us. You know, we always answer our phones. We're always available, always there. Our market knowledge, you know, we are selling a lot of homes currently where a lot of realtors are not. You know, so our average realtor in our marketplace is selling six homes a year. And this year we'll wind up with selling around 450. So our market knowledge is very strong. And, and I think people see that. They see our properties out there turning, sold signs going up. And, you know, our marketing efforts. We were very aggressive online marketing. And now we're getting very aggressive with different uh, video tours, YouTube videos, in that end of it. But, you know, market knowledge is, is the biggest thing. You know, what we're seeing a lot of is people want somebody that knows what it's going to take to get it sold. And then want somebody that's confident in the price of what it's going to take to get the job done and trust us on that. When you get a listing appointment, do you send out a pre-listing package? You know, it's something I used to do and I haven't done for years. But as things change, we may go back to that. I used to give the listing appointment, have the pre-market package dropped, handwrite a card, send it in the mail, in addition to the pre-list pack, then meet with them. And then if I didn't secure the listing right there, you know, do another handwritten card and then try to, you know, follow up and secure it after that point. Recently, we haven't been, just because, one, it's been such a small part of our business until the last 30 days. To be honest, I don't know where we got away with that. It's probably just a time thing, but we, we had in the last couple of years. Right now, what I'm doing, though, I'm not sure if I'm going to do the pre-list packet again or I'm having a video create. I've got a company out there right now creating a, uh, basically, it's going to be about a three to four minute listing presentation video. And that's going to talk about the team, talk about our brand, you know, how we're going to get your house sold in the fastest amount of time for the highest possible dollar amount for the least hassle, all of that, that we're going to instruct and have the sellers watch beforehand. So they can go right on our site, click it, watch that three, four-minute video beforehand, or if they don't, they're unable to get on our site, we can email them the link and watch that. So we may, we're still kind of on the fence of just going strong with that video ensuring that they watch that before we meet or going back to a pre-list package in addition to the video. We haven't really decided that yet. 
but the video we actually just sent off the final content to the videographer of the company yesterday to get that started. So hopefully the next 30 days we'll have that done. And like I said, that'll be featured on the front of our website, how we get your home sold or whatever we're going to label it. They click on there and just a short three to four minute video about that. And then hopefully that'll make it where we can do away with a pre-listing package, but we may have to go back. I guess we'll just have to kind of play it by ear and, and see how receptive it is. You mentioned that you're working in a retirement community or there's a lot of folks there who are older. Do you think that they're going to like to see a video or would they prefer to have you uh, show them something that they can open up like a book? We kind of cover all bases. We still have our binded listing presentation. The video, basically what I'm doing there is we'll have the video to cover more of the tech-savvy sellers out there. We also are having it created on Keynote for all of our iPads. So we can go there and, and just kind of do a, a finger flip through each page on the iPad. So it's still paperless. But if we need to, we still have the binded old school free ring bound listing presentation for that. But what we're finding, to be honest with you, is most of the active adult communities, just because they're a retirement community, they're extremely tech savvy. They're as tech savvy as is our regular sellers, if not more, you know, because they're out there on Facebook or on YouTube doing videos of their grandkids or whatever it may be. One of our big strong selling points now that's, that's starting to land us more listings in there is pushing that, you know, where your properties will be listed on Facebook and on YouTube and been really receptive in there. So we're seeing that even the retirement communities, they're very tech savvy. You know, they're, they're moving that way. On your listings, do you use a canned or a standard listing presentation? you got to feel everybody out. Everybody's a little different. There's a lot of people that we meet with and they say, hey, no, we, we, you know, we've seen your stuff. We, we know you guys do a great job. We just want to get it listed. Get that once in a while or it just depends on, on the, the personality of the person. So, you know, we do have one standard listing presentation that we can go through with everybody. So somebody's more of a, you know, say the seller's an engineer and, and really wants all the facts and the details. If they're that personality type, then we go through everything word by word and explain everything more thoroughly and may spend 45 minutes at it. Where if somebody's, you know, a different type of personality, I just give it to me quick and, and let's get this thing, you know, let's get this on listed. You know, we only may spend a few minutes on there. So it's, it's not the same routine for every single seller. We kind of feel them out a little bit and, and take it from there. Let's shift our focus to buyers. How many buyers are you currently working with? The active buyers that our buyer agents are taking a look at homes right now is, and I don't have the exact numbers, but it is probably around 30 that they're currently out there showing homes with. Each buyer lead right now is, is averaging about 25 buyer leads a week. Their lead database is big, but actually actively showing homes to is probably around 30. We've got four full-time buyer agents right now. Why would a buyer work with your team? What is your competitive advantage on the buyer side? Well, again, one is the team concept. It seems like the general public is aware and very receptive to the team concept. You know, we're always available. If they're out with another client, but the form needs to get signed or something, there's an urgent matter, anybody on the team is able to step in and help out on that. We have, you know, whether it's an assistant or Randy or I get involved in a lot of things and then help them out. So I, th I think that they, they're receptive to that. But the biggest thing, I think, is just the follow-up. There's so many agents out there that just do not answer their phones, do not return calls, do not return emails. So if you're just an agent out there that works hard and, and provides service that you would expect to receive, then you're already 95% of the ahead of the rest of the agents out there. You know, they, they're, they're going to already make you look good because they, they do such a poor job with it. So returning emails immediately, returning calls immediately, stay on top of it. And the, and the systems, you know, the systems do help. For example, we get a buyer lead, an uh, email home search into our website. 
they, they specify what they're looking for, what captures all the information. We put them in our MLS system, set up that custom search so they're alerted the second anything comes on the market that meets their criteria. But at the same time, they're automatically input in our drip campaigns. So in the beginning, they'll get an email from our website that we're not sending out, but they think that it's from us, but it's auto-generated from the drip campaign. But they'll just follow up with them. Hey, how are the searches going? Are there any homes that you want to take a look at? emails like that, that's constant communication with them. So I, th- I think that's where it comes into play. We get calls constantly of uh, sign calls, for example, or, or buyer agents. You know, oh my gosh, thanks for answering your phone. You're, we, we've called, you're the you know, sixth sign we've called, and you're the only one that's answered their phone. It's a big thing today. It, it just seems like most agents kind of want to play that secret agent role and, and not answer their phones and not be available and, and anymore. You just, you just can't operate that way. Do you require buyers to meet with you in a sit-down appointment before you'll show them homes? No, we do not. We've talked about that. We do have a buyer consultation presentation that, that we try to, I mean, we push for it. We try to go for it, but some buyers aren't comfortable with that. So what we will do, they're at a house that they really want to see. We'll meet them there one time. And then after that, they've got to come into the office sit down, go through the buyer consultation. We'll set up a custom search with them together on the computer, go from there. So that initial visit, we ask a series of questions to make sure they're not working with another realtor to make, see if they've been pre-qualified, all of that. But if our buyer agents are comfortable with running right at the house and meeting with them, that first initial meeting, initial showing, we're more than happy to do it. Because a lot of agents refuse to do it. You know, it seems like the, the buyers out there really appreciate that we're willing to do it. It makes them a lot more comfortable, it seems like. Does Arizona have buyer agency? We do, yes. Do you require a buyer to sign that agreement before you'll show them additional homes? We do not. Kind of go back and forth. Personally, before I started the team, when I worked with buyers, I made them do it. I just said, okay, here, here's all the service I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to work extremely hard for you. All I, you know, It's free for you. The seller pays my commission. All I ask for you in return is your commitment. And that you, you know, if you do purchase a home, you're going to purchase it through me. But I'd ask for that. We don't mandate our buyer agents to do it. Some of our, our buyer agents do. It just depends on their comfort level. We do still ask for their commitment. During our buyer consultation, there's a form that we created that's not the buyer broker agreement, but again, talks about the services that we do and asks for their, uh, their commitment through a handshake, you know, if our, if our buyer agents are comfortable with it. But we don't mandate them to do it. If they don't feel comfortable doing it, then we're not going to uh, lose buyers that way. Let's talk about your team now. You've got a large team. You've got 14 people running around. First of all, let's walk through a list of who is on the team by position or title. Could you walk down the list for us? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll start with uh, with the listing specialist. So you've got myself, which I oversee the REO side. So I personally am the main contact on the REO side. My father and business partner, Randy, who is the listing specialist for the traditional sales. Brooke Jordan, who is our short sale listing specialist. Now, we actually just added on. Now, right now, it's, we're kind of on a trial phase, but two new listing specialists for the short sales, just because we're trying to be extremely aggressive on, on growing that, that end of it. So we have the people in the support there when that demand's there. So currently, we've got, we got the three listing specialists there. Buyer specialists, we have four full-time buyer specialists. We have James Tucker, John Whalen, Kathy Gibson, and Jamie Consalvo. And then field techs, I've got two full-time field techs. And basically the field techs' roles are 
they inspect every one of our REOs every week, make sure their homes are secure, utilities are on, the house is clean, looks good, there's no new repair issues, that sort of thing. But now we're starting to bring them into more of the traditional side. They're going to start delivering the, the door front packages for the, the short sale packages to the doors of the NODs, the properties I was talking about there on the NOD list. And then, you know, they'll get, we'll get to the point where they're stocking flyers and, and all that on our traditional sales. Um, so we're starting to slowly transition to that. And then my administrative support, basically I, I've got a full-time REO coordinator. So she helps out with pretty much anything on the REO side. She's kind of my uh, right-hand man, I should say. Um, she submits all the offers, helps manage some of the escrows, creates amendments. Any assistance that I need, she, she's basically there for on the REO side. And then we've got a full-time transaction coordinator that does all the transaction coordinating for the whole entire team. So whether it's an REO or a short sale or a buyer deal, her job is, is to follow up with the title company, follow up with the lenders, make sure everything's on track, notifying each agent twice a week, every single week of the status on that file. So that way our agents are able to just be out there selling homes to their, their, new, uh, their new clientele. They're not having to follow up with lenders and title companies all day and, and faxing paperwork. She kind of handles that all for them and then uh, just supplies them twice a week with an update that they can just forward on to their clients. You know, they can just, while they're driving down the road on, on their way to an appointment, call up their client, just provide that information for them. And then I've got a full-time bookkeeper, and the bookkeeper's role is really the REO receivables, um, which means utilities, you know, all of that. So you have to, after I cut those checks, we have a, a submission process with the bank that we have to we have to follow to submit and ask for the, to be reimbursed. So she submits all the reimbursements and then follows up to ensure we get all of our money back. And then we actually have another part-time bookkeeper that just comes in Tuesdays and Thursdays and assists her. So she, she's real part-time. That actually makes up the total team of 14. I counted four administrative, and I didn't know if you had five. Did we miss anybody? Yeah, we do have Patty Hamilton. She was in charge of all of our utilities, repair bids, all of that, which she still does that. It's just, like I said, that's slowed down, so it's on a little bit of a smaller scale. And now she's coming on more of the marketing side. So she's overseeing some of the CRM to help us out with the accountability on the buyer agent side. And she's also prepping the short sale packages that we're sending out and doing our expired letters for us as well. Are all these people licensed or unlicensed? So my field techs are not licensed. They don't require a license. They have zero interaction with other agents. So they're unlicensed. As far as my administrative staff, only two of them are licensed. And that's my REO coordinator and the transaction coordinator. In the state of Arizona, if you're dealing and have any communication with the realtor, you basically have to be licensed. So if you're providing a status update on a property, if it's available, what the price is, any sort of escrow updates, you have to be fully licensed for that. So they are the only two that are licensed. Patty that does the utilities and repair bids, she's unlicensed, and then the two bookkeepers are unlicensed. And then, of course, all the buyer listing specialists are, are fully licensed as well. Buyer agents, do you prefer to hire experienced or inexperienced agents? We've had great luck with both, so we don't really care. I have other team leaders that I network with, and they'll only hire somebody that's two years under the belt or whatever it may be. For example, we just hired a gentleman that moved down here from Washington State, retired from the military, and just got his license, brand new. The business hadn't closed an escrow, and now he, he's my number one performer right now. 
You know, he's doing a phenomenal job. So, you know, for us, it's just more based on our interview with them, their personalities, if they click with their team, if they're going to click with our environment. So we really don't look into that. Personally, sometimes it's a little easier with a brand-new agent. It can be a little bit more time-consuming as far as training them, but it can be a little easier in the fact that they're going to do things the way that you want. If you've got an agent that's been in the business five years, sometimes you get a little bit of pushback. They want to do things their way, and you just it can be some work to get them fully onto your systems. But you know, we kind of take it case by case because we've had great success with both. How do you compensate your buyer agents? Buyer agents are a 50-50 split. Basically, with our REMAX here in Arizona that we're with, a buyer's agent to hang their license. To, so to hang your license here, there's a fee each month. After they do three transactions, and everything's still 50-50 split, but after they do three transactions, we actually pay for their fee. So as long as they're performing and doing three deals a month, they're working for free. But what we had found, too, is with prices getting so low, especially, you know, some of these short sales and other deals are only paying the buyer's agent 2.5%, commissions are getting extremely low. So we, you know, we kind of changed our split slightly, and we just did this recently to, to give them a little bit more incentive. So the first three, again, are 50-50, and then we pick up their fee, you know, which is almost equivalent to another closing so they all push really, really hard to get that third closing in there each. On the fourth through sixth escrow, we go to a 60-40 split. So they get 60%, we get 40%. If they do seven plus escrows, they get 70%, we get 30%. And that's each month? They reset each month. So the first three, we always get 50%, and then number closing four through six, they get the, the 60% and then closing 7 plus, they get that, yeah, and then like exactly, it resets each month. Like I said, we just switched to a new system where if they don't have at least, so like here we just went into October, just closed, we're going into November 1st. If they don't have a minimum of two escrows or two properties in escrow closing for November, they don't get any leads from us for that month. So it forces them to get back and work their old leads. And then it rewards the guys that are out there, you know, because you get agents that, you know, we're only going to close one or two deals a month, but you have agents that, that close seven or eight a month for you consistently, and your leads are better off being with the agents that you're confident are going to get closed. Your short sale listing specialist, how are you compensating him? Hers just a flat 50-50. And the reason we don't adjust that is because we have a lot of money into it as far as marketing, signage. You know, there's a lot of additional expenses that we have there that we don't have with our, with our buyers. You know, it seems like the industry normally, at least with agents that I meet with out there, is more of a 70-30% where I would retain 70% and she would only get 30%. But we've went a little higher percentage on that just because my main focus has been, and we'll see how the future goes, but has had to be on REO. Basically, all the marketing, everything's forwarded to her, so she has to take the calls, set the presentations, do the listing presentation, handle all the paperwork, handle all the negotiations, everything on her own where she's not getting some of the support that other listing specialists may provide. She's doing everything on her own. Basically, all I'm doing is cutting the check for the marketing, and she's taking everything over from there. So she's negotiating with the banks after you find a buyer and put it under contract? Correct, yep. Maybe you're not paying her enough? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, she she does very well. She's very happy. The field techs, how are you compensating them? We pay them an hourly rate and then plus mileage. So, you know, whatever the IRS tax code says, and and right now I think it's 52 cents a mile. How about the administrative staff? 
everybody's a little different. Actually, every all, only one is salary, my audio coordinator salary, and, and we did that because she, she's been with me since day one, and then everybody else is on hourly. Any kind of bonuses for the administrative staff? No, we do not. How did you find these people? Everybody's been a little different. Some I've found off Facebook ads. The audio coordinator that's been with me the, the longest, uh, Ashley, she was actually with a title company that I used that when things were slowing down, they were having to, to lay off people. And unfortunately, her position got cut, and I had been using her for, for some time. So I was able to pick her up right from there, send her to real estate school. Yeah, because we'd already had a great work, working relationship, and I think she'd be great. Some Craigslist, anytime we're looking for a hire, we basically do a few different things. We blast out to all the different agents that, you know, whether they're within our company or not, um, that we network with that may have recently had a layoff somebody or know of somebody. Possibly if they just had a hire, interviewed a lot of people and had, you know, their number two, three pick that didn't quite make it, have them forward us their, their resumes. Craigslist, Craigslist has kind of went down, though. We used to get a lot of good, even our buyer agents off of Craigslist, but anymore, it just seems like we're, we're getting a lot of junk ads. People are just putting out the ads so they can show the unemployment office that they put out an ad. We're not able to get a call back, a response back, nothing from them. Facebook is getting better and better. You know, just posting on there to all of our friends and family. Hey, you know, we're looking for this position. If you know of anybody, let me know. We've got a few hires from that. So kind of all different sources. You've got all these people running around, a lot of balls in the air. Are you profitable? Well, I could be more profitable. Always trying to find that, you know, how to, how to keep more. Last year, being honest, it was a tough year. I mean, on the books, according to the IRS and my accountant, we had a profitable year, but they don't count receivables. You know, the, the money that you're floating out there, that's really not an expense. You know, you're basically just loaning that money out there. That was a tough year. It ended up okay, but it was a year that we really struggled. And that's one thing, again, going back to stress and for REO agents, you know, be prepared for that. That could, you, know, you may be in a position where you go half a year without, without a single paycheck to, to carry those costs. But yeah, no, this year will, uh, will turn out to be uh, probably our most profitable year. So last year was profitable, but the cash flow was tight. Yeah, we were cash broke, or however you want to put it, cash strapped. For agents who are, are looking at trying to put together a model similar to yours, could you help them out by letting them know what your profit margin is, what your profit as a percentage of your revenues is, or what your goal is? Our expenses, our overall expenses right now are about 35% of what our gross income is. The expenses are 35% or the profit is? The overall expenses. Now, that's, again, not counting receivables or any of that. That's fantastic. Your profit margin is about 65%. Correct, correct. Wow, that's great. Congratulations. And again, you know, and you got to understand our partnership's a little different. And you got to remember, I do have a partner that profit at the end of the does, you know, get divided. I know it seems like our staff's very large, but for the amount of inventory we carry at homes we sell, it's actually very lean compared to most. You know, we're very involved in our business. You know, we both work 60 hours a week a light week, you know, we both work a lot of hours and then work hard. And so we're able to, to keep some of that profit. So you're putting in a lot of labor, your own personal labor, to try to keep that expense number down and the profit up. Absolutely. Well, and the other thing is this market, especially when you're in the REO, it expands and contracts. A couple of years ago, the banks put on a large moratorium. So one day you're getting a lot of assignments, and the next thing you know, for six months you're getting zero. So you have to almost run a lean 
lean staff, and then when it gets busy, you know, everybody's got to put in extra hours and work overtime and all of that, just so in the slow times, everybody still is able to retain a job. Let's talk about time management. How do you keep control of your time? To me, that's a big thing. I always say that there's all the same amount of hours in a day. So the only difference between an agent that's doing very well and an agent that's doing not is is their time management. You know, we all have the same exact hours in a day. So you, you've got you to gotta manage that very, very closely. I mean, I've got every second of my day when I arrive in the office first thing in the morning, it's all time blocked. You know, this, this project's from here to here to here, and then I step onto this, 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 and it's very systematized on how I do it. So, and I don't allow many interruptions. You know, I, I'm not a big meeting guy. I stay focused on getting the task done, getting completed, and, and move on to the next task and follow it, you know, make sure I follow it every day. You mentioned time blocking. Does that mean that you've outlined a perfect day or a perfect week? Yeah, you know, and, and again, it's there's always things that throw in there, and, and today is different than it was six months ago. Um, six months ago it was, okay, I got in the office every day, I QC'd every listing agreement, then I QC'd the BPOs, then I QC'd my monthly status reports, and then I QC'd and reviewed some of the repair bids, and then I would respond to, to emails and phone calls at that point, and then I would deal with my relocation assistance to cash for keys, and then deal with any closing issues that my assistants needed help with, and then back to emails and returning calls. So it was, it was time blocked very differently because the amount of inventory and the amount of closing we're doing it was just a little different than it is today. Now my schedule is more. I come in by 11 a.m. every day. Basically all of my REO stuff is handled. Now things come up, you know, so I may have to get involved later in the day, but by 11 all that's done. Then I have time blocked off about three hours every day to start prospecting and marketing again because you know, again everything's changed so much devoting and dedicating that time for example if i get a you know a lender or vendor that wants to take me out to, to meet at that time i can't this is every day from 10 to 2 is or whatever it may be is my prospecting time that's blocked off nobody else is allowed that time so you have a certain number of hours do you prospect every day yeah i'm not going to lie to you it did go away a little bit or a lot of it <laughs> with as busy as we were with the reo you know it was just at that point, it was just more managing what we had. Who knows what the future is going to take there. But you know, the great part about this slowdown that we've seen is it's allowed me to take a step back and to implement the system and get back into a lot of things that we lost sight on. So yeah, now I'm back into, and it's not all, I shouldn't say all prospecting. I mean, it is, it is somewhat prospecting going after, you know, I'm actually still prospecting banks and, and trying to get with a few new banks. But now it's more, uh, I guess my prospecting is more developing the marketing to get out there. It's like I told you, the listing video that we're creating, that's taken up uh, quite a bit of my time trying to really get the, the, this listing presentation, this listing video exactly how we want it, putting that together, did our short sale marketing packages. And we're tweaking those and changing everything that we do almost on a monthly basis, just trying new things and to, to see what kind of a response we, we get out of it. So yeah, that's what that three hours is devoted to every day. How many hours do you work in a typical week? My typical day, I guess I've never really broken down per week because it's, it's tough. I mean, you never really stop working. Even when I'm at home at 8 o'clock at night, you know, I've got my iPad on me and I'm always email, you know, doing something. But, you know, I say I'm an early riser, so I start my day. I get up every morning at 4 in the morning. I do about 30 minutes worth of emails and responding back to anything that came over throughout the night. And then that's when I do my, you know, more of my social media stuff, you know, posts on my Facebook page, whether it's from DS News or, or whatever, just sharing links, 
in some of our Facebook marketing strategies for that first 30 minutes, and I actually take a little me time and hit the gym. By the time I'm done with that, I'm in the office by 7, and then uh, my goal is to be out of the office every night by, by 6 p.m. Then I usually get home, you know, dinner, spend some time with my wife and my kids. But again, technology is great, but the unfortunate part about it is it's so hard to shut it off. You know, I've always got my iPad my phone with me and responding to those. So, And then usually once I put the kids down for bed, I've got about another half hour that I'm back on it. And then the weekends, you know, over the last year, I've been fortunate enough to take the majority of the weekends off. You know, I'm always responding to emails or I might have to get up and do a couple hours of work in the morning before my kids are awake. For the majority of the weekends, you know, I'm able to kind of put that away as family time because I do work so much during the week. Do you have a business plan? I used to be very, very strict on starting my business plan every year in October. This year, we're actually, we just started again for 2012. My business plan for the last couple of years, again, I guess it's kind of tough to understand until you're in this situation, but we were just managing the business that we had. I mean, we got kind of content, kind of comfortable we were just managing the business that we had, so we weren't, we were still growing our database, we're still staying in touch with our past database, but we weren't necessarily really trying to grow our business at that point. But now, absolutely, we're trying, you know, we're tweaking some advertising, advertising deals, because I have a yearly goal I want to hit with, you know, number of short sales sold, number of REOs sold, number of buyers sold, number of traditional sales sold, how many listing appointments, how many calls we need to, to generate those. And now the hard part is because we got away from it for the last few years is, for example, if, if my goal is to sell 15 short sales a month, well, you know, I probably need to list 15 new short sales a month. Well, how many marketing pieces do I need to put out there to generate those calls? So it's kind of starting over again but we are putting our 2012 business plan back to back together and back into action. For us, it's really, to be honest with you right now, back to the basics. And then the nice thing is, if and when the REO does come back, the team's still intact, we're here for it, but we have created other positions, bringing on other short sales specialists and all that to handle the other business so we can continue to grow it. The ultimate result for me is to have much more of a balanced business going forward, you know, where it's not... 80% REOR, whatever it may be. Joshua, what drives you? If you're going to do anything, my philosophy is do it to the best of your potential. You know, I feel like I'm just kind of getting started with this. You know, I feel like I've got a lot of, lot of potential to tap into and to go forward with it. And I guess I've got a very addictive personality. So when I get involved in anything that I love, whether it's you know, working out or not, you know, real estate, I go full in. And obviously, children, and, and I, I want to have something that there's an opportunity for them in the future that they can take over. But I'm just wired that way. You know, I'm very, very competitive. I'm probably more competitive than I am money motivated. I won't be happy till you know, my, I have a goal of, of eventually becoming the number one REMAX agent in the world. And until I hit that, I probably won't be satisfied. So the competitiveness is there. And, and, yeah, and a big part of it is, you know, in 20 years when, when my kids are my kids are really young. I've got a, my daughter was three in August and my son will be a year and a half here in January. But, you know, when they're, when they're at the age, if they decide to, it'd be great to have something for them to get involved in and, and eventually take over and, and run from there. Why are you successful? There's nothing special. I mean, there's no special reason. You know, I'm just a, just a regular guy. There's nothing special about me that makes me successful. I guess the biggest reason, though, I would say is I've been fortunate to be able to surround myself with some great mentors. I do have a coach, a personal coach, 
and you know, I, I guess I, I'm wise enough to listen to them. From the first day I got in this business, the new business to me, and, and I just looked for agents that were in a position where I wanted to be, and I'd interview them and then copy exactly what they're doing. You know, there, there's nothing, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wellness business. There's no special secret. Just find out where you want to go, find out who's achieved that, what they're doing, and follow it. And, and maybe they're doing 20 different big things. Well, start with two of those and then have it on your goal list. You know, once this becomes profitable and successful, then you add something and then you add another one. I, I've been fortunate to, to have some great mentors, but listening to them is a big thing. You know, we all go to so many classes. We all get, you know, great coaching and have so many great resources, but most agents, they wind up in a drawer and they never apply them. So, you know, you got to educate yourself, but you have to be wise enough to apply it and stay focused on it. Don't give up because I will tell you, it's been a struggle with everybody else is having, I've been through. This market's tough. It was tough when I first got started. Yeah, I hit it off, started selling homes right away. But, you know, there was also large expenses incurred within that. And I made some, you know, personal financial mistakes back in the day. And, I mean, it was a struggle. But I never gave up. I just kept plugging away. I knew that someday it would pay off. And, you know, we've all had those days where we say, oh, you know, I'm, this is it, man. <laughs> you know, I, I'm done, you know. And, and uh, you just got to you know, kind of get control of your own mind, stay focused, and, um, you know, keep plugging away. But I'd say the biggest thing is you got to create that roadmap to where you want to wind up, find agents that are achieving that success. You know, and, and what I found is if you call up a top agent and say if they're out of the state wherever, you know, they're, they're very receptive. You know, if you call them and say, hey, you know, I've been uh, reading a lot about you. I, I really respect your business model. I'm a newer agent. Can you take a few minutes to give me some advice? I've found that they're extremely receptive, but you have to apply what they're telling you. If you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Get some business cards, get a name tag. I always tell my agents, if you want one or two more deals a month, just wear your name tag everywhere and bring your business cards everywhere and smile. Going to Starbucks, you know, especially with, with the economy the way it is, everybody wants to talk about real estate. There's been times that I have to take my name tag off just because if I'm running in somewhere, it's been a crazy stressful day because I know somebody's going to stop me and talk to me about it. Get out there. There's so many cheap, inexpensive ways to prospect yourself. When you first start, I mean, there's a big difference between prospecting and marketing. And when you first start in a business, you have to prospect hard. That means wearing your name tag, just go everywhere you go, being out there with it, handing out business cards, open houses. Find agents in your office that allow you to do their open houses for them. You can borrow their signs until you can financially afford to, to get your own. Find one that are a great location. Open houses were a huge builder in the beginning of my business. So just getting started that way and, and talking to everybody you know. Let them know what you're doing. And the great thing about when you first start is that initial excitement. People see that and they'll love your excitement want to do business with you. But you got to get out there and, and get known in the community. Was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't addressed? The market's moving forward. I know every marketplace is different, but I know a lot of places in the country right now, the, the economy is still very tough. But if you stay positive out there, if you work hard, you're going to be successful. It doesn't matter what kind of market. One of my first mentors always told me they always did better and were more profitable in down markets than in strong markets. And I never understood that until the last couple of years. But these down markets, you can do very well and you can build your database big. But, you know, you got to stay positive. you got to stay focused and just get out there, apply yourself, and, and, and work hard, and, and hard work always pays off. Well, Joshua, 
You give excellent advice. You have the wisdom to take ideas you've heard and apply them to your business before they dust over in a dark desk drawer. You and your father Randy have created a successful and admirable partnership that has allowed each of you to capitalize on your strengths. Built on trust, you each can test and develop different markets, giving the team multiple income streams and opportunities. I look forward to tracking your future success. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.